Well, it kind of feels like I should do a Christmas message today, huh? Well, that's next week. We'll do one next week. Today, we're still in the book of 1 Corinthians, so please get your Bible and turn with me to that book in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at chapter 4, the first five verses. A new chapter in 1 Corinthians. Exciting. Uh, We've made it uh, three-sixteenths of the way there. Now we begin chapter 4. Let me read the text again. This is what Rex read for us earlier. I'll read it for us again and then open with a word of prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. The inspired apostle writes this, "'Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God.'" In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Father, thank You for Your Word that You've put in front of us this morning. Thank You for the inspired message of Scripture, that we have it preserved here in front of us, that we have it in our own language, we have it in great comfort. And we can examine it today to study, to show ourselves approved, that we could study to learn, study to grow, that we might be more like Christ, and that our fellowship may be more biblical and gospel-centered. Lord, thank You for this opportunity. Don't have us squander it this morning, but have us to be supremely focused on Your Word, that we would be free from distraction, and that this would be a message today that would grip our hearts because it is from Your Word. And Lord, I ask, though I am fallen, I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice. Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way of Your text this morning, but that Your Word would be clear to Your people, and that we would all uh, be more like Christ because of the time we spend here today. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we finished chapter 3 in these amazing verses that close the chapter, when Paul says, let no one boast in men, but you should understand that whether it's Paul or Apollos or Peter or anyone else, all men belong to you, Corinthians, Paul said. All things belong to you, was his message to them. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Remember, the Corinthians had this propensity to choose what apostles they were going to follow and say, I belong to this apostle, whether it's Paul or someone else. They were making teams. They were creating factions. And Paul turns all of that on its head, and he says, you don't belong to them. You don't belong to me. We belong to you. And if believers don't belong to apostles, but vice versa then those especially gifted men who held that office, those apostles, they were to be viewed properly by the Corinthians, and they are still to be viewed properly by us today as we read about them in Scripture. 
And all men, all Christians are to be viewed properly in our minds. They're to to be esteemed accurately that we wouldn't lift men up above their proper place. But as Paul writes this morning, apostles and, yes, even all Christians are to be properly understood as stewards and servants, servants and stewards. The Corinthians were not to judge those apostles or even each other with any kind of human standards, or to judge them comparatively, saying that I like this teacher or this apostle because of this, and well, how could you like him? Look at this guy, I like him because of this, and let's compare notes, and let's give them grades, and let's see who's better. Christians are not to behave that way with those types of standards, those worldly, fallen, earthly, human judgments. This is very pertinent to us today. Because not only do we judge, and there is plenty of room for judging in the Christian life, you're to judge all sorts of things. You're to judge what church to attend, and you're to do so with righteous judgment. You're to judge uh, if, someone's, uh, if someone is teaching something accurately, whether you're hearing that on the radio or on TV, wherever it may be. You're to judge those things. But there are certain things that you're not supposed to judge, and there are certain ways you're not supposed to judge. And people will judge you. If they haven't told you to your face, well, let me tell you to your face. (laughs) People will and have judged you. It will happen over and over. So what do we make of human judgments? Well, you can see from the title of today's message, Only God Can Judge Me. It's a phrase certainly you've heard in a variety of contexts, many of which probably weren't appropriate, where people were justifying some sort of sinful behavior or something like that. But at the end of the day, it is a true statement because at the end, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's opinion. Only God is the true and righteous judge of the universe. So today, I want us to address fear of man issues, and I've got the five verses broken up into two sections. The first two verses, as we look at them, I want us to consider how we view each other, how we view one another. So let's look at them again. Paul says quite clearly, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word for stewards or servants there rather is most often translated officer in the New Testament. That may surprise you, that it sounds like a word that's very lowly, and officer sounds like a word that's really lifted up. But uh, the word had its beginnings talking about under rowers, those who were treated like the scum that had to row the boat, uh, who did the grunt work. That was how the word started out in translation, meaning that type of role. And as it moved on in its evolution, becoming like the word officer, it maintained an important aspect of its definition, namely that it always meant someone who is subordinate. Subordinate. Officers were still subordinate to their leaders. And so as it's used here, though it could be considered as an under rower, scum of the earth, grunt work guy, or it could be considered as an honorable position as an officer, the idea still remains that it is a person who is subordinate. Is a person who is subordinate. And notice that he says us in this verse. Let man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. 
When he says us, he's talking about all of those whom the Corinthians had held up in high esteem, all those apostles that have been named, that all these teachers of Scripture should be considered as servants, under rowers, officers, subordinates of Christ. Let them not be lifted up as leaders, but have them be understood rightly as subordinates, subordinates of the one master, Jesus Christ. This is Paul's Paul's only use of this word, it's the only time that this word shows up in the New Testament after the book of Acts, but it is a very common concept. It's a common concept found in the New Testament, and I want to show you some passages where this word is used to get a fuller understanding of that word servant. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Luke is starting off his introduction to Theophilus, speaking of how he came to make this account of the life of Christ, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Luke is saying here that he compiled his gospel account from those who also tried to compile gospel accounts as servants of the Word, those who took seriously the Old Covenant and took seriously the writing of the New Testament. They were servants of the Word itself, ministers of the Word. In Acts chapter 13, verse 5, Acts 13, 5, it says, when they, talking about Paul and Barnabas, reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the Word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they also had John as their helper or servant or under rower. John, uh, who is also known as John Mark and becomes quite the center of controversy a couple chapters later in the book of Acts, he was there with Paul and Barnabas as their helper. Same word. And then in Acts 24, verse 23, Acts chapter 24, verse 23, Paul in prison, it says that... Uh, He gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept, talking about Paul, to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from serving, helping him. Same word, ministering. So the word is pretty broad. Servant, helper, officer, under rower, minister. It can mean all of these things. And we see it here in our text today as definitional to the role of teachers of Scripture, even apostles themselves, that they were to be considered servants of Christ. And when you see of Christ there, you can read that as a possessive. It could say they are servants, Christ's servants. They belong to Christ. They are possessed by Christ. He's the only one that they serve. There is no one else who, who lords over them as master but the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ Himself. They were servants belonging to Jesus Christ. That's not the only title He gives them. He says they're also stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, this word stewards is an interesting word. It means house law, house law, namely a house law keeper a slave, a trusted slave on someone's property who had been there for some time, who knew the ins and outs of the property, not just uh, the physical layout of the property and all the physical things that go on, but even the finances and the most intricate details of a person's property. 
He was in charge of those things, the manager of someone's entire property. That's the idea with steward. And Paul says, let man regard us as stewards, stewards of the mystery of God. Paul viewed himself and the others as slaves entrusted with mysteries. And in the New Testament, lots of things are called mysteries. It's a pretty common word. In fact, you'll see in the New Testament the hardening of Israel, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the bride and bridegroom relationship that the church has with Jesus, the gospel itself, Christ Himself, and the catching up of the church at the end of the age, all described as mysteries. All of these teachings in the New Testament are referred to as mysteries. And I believe what Paul has in view here is Christ and the gospel. Look back at chapter 2 with me. He's already used this word mystery. See what he has in mind. Start at verse 1 with me. 1 Corinthians 2, 1, Paul writes, "'When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God.'" Drop down to verse 6, he says, "'Yet we do speak a wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. I believe Paul here has in mind when he says we are stewards of the mysteries of God, he has in mind a heavenly understanding of the cross and salvation, a spiritually mature understanding of the cross where Jesus died and salvation imparted to man. And this was a legit way to sum up the apostolic ministry. They were stewards of revealed teachings. And today we have no more stewards of revealed teachings because God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. The role of apostle, the office of apostle has faded away as those who revealed the mysteries of God. And what we have now are teachers and evangelists, pastors, elders, Those who are equipped with stewarding the administration of the Word. The apostles stewarded the revelation of the Word, and teachers today steward the administration of that revealed Word. Paul regarded his ministry as a stewardship of revealed mysteries. And we see it not just here, we see it in other books too. Turn with me forward to the book of Colossians, just a few books forward. Through 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, you'll arrive at Colossians. And look at chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. See how Paul again sums up his ministry, how his ministry is to be considered, how the office of apostle is to be reckoned by men. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. It says, "'Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake,' And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, 
so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, verse 26, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works in me. This was Paul's focus, proclaiming the mystery of Jesus, namely, Jesus in you, he says, specifically, especially, Christ in you. What a mystery! And it was revealed through the ministry, through the office of the apostles and prophets. All those who were called apostles were stewards of a heavenly message to the church that Christ would come and take up residence in the hearts of both Jew and Gentile, all those who would bow the knee before King Jesus. Stewardship of the ministry of the mysteries. In verse 2, he expands on this idea of 1 Corinthians 4. In verse 2, he says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Stewards were and are expected to be faithful and trustworthy people. Again, going back to how that word was used, considering those who were in charge of enforcing the house law on a property, those who were uh, hired and put in that position of stewarding the entire property, there's a lot of pressure on that person. And there's a lot of pressure on the owner to be sure that that person is trustworthy. Certainly, there were cases in history of untrustworthy servants on a property. And perhaps you've seen that in your day with jobs that you've had. I remember uh, my first job was at the Missouri State Fair. Very, very prestigious role that I had there. <clears throat> I was in a booth. Um, I was in a booth, and the outline of the booth was perhaps a little bit smaller than the outline of this pulpit. Uh, very tiny booth. And my job was to sell tickets on the midway to people who wanted to ride the rides you know, what every young man dreams of doing for his summer. And uh, there I was, and you could buy the tickets in two different ways. You could buy the tickets individually, or you could buy the family pack. The tickets were a dollar each individually, or you could get 25 for $20 through the family pack. Well, I heard from a friend of mine uh, who, by worldly standards, was a friend. Now, from a Christian perspective, I wouldn't call him a friend, who taught me that wait a second, I can break off individually the tickets from the 25 for 20 pack and give those to people who are buying them individually. And when I run out of one of those sheets, I can swipe $5 for myself. Something like that. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I was making $5 each time that I sold X number of tickets. Wow. Well, that was pretty nice because I was making $4.75 an hour. <laughs> and when you're making $4.75 an hour, if you can bump that up to $9.75 an hour, as a 15-year-old, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're thinking, that's some hamburgers at McDonald's or whatever I was thinking in those days. How untrustworthy was I as a steward? 
swiping a little bit of money under the table for myself. And there are ministers of the gospel who are not trustworthy stewards, who do a little bit of this, who do a little bit of that, in darkness, behind closed doors, say certain things, make certain deals, and everything's hush-hush. It's not the way it should be. Because it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Stewards are responsible. Not saying they act responsible, but God holds them to account as responsible individuals. And with responsibility comes expectation. Look down in this very chapter, down to verse 17, briefly. We'll get to this verse soon. Paul says, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy was sent to the Corinthians because Paul trusted him. Paul had all kinds of contacts. He had all kinds of people he could send to the Corinthians who listened to Paul and followed Paul. And he chose Timothy because Timothy was faithful, his faithful and beloved son in the Lord. And this is the mark of a true Christian minister, is one who is faithful, one who is trustworthy. John MacArthur writes this, God supplies His Word, His Spirit, His gifts, and His power. All that the minister can supply is His faithfulness in using those resources. The work is demanding, but is basically simple, taking God's Word and feeding it faithfully to His people. That is the role and the mark of a true Christian minister, to be faithful. Now, beyond that, think of yourself. How can you view yourself as a follower of Jesus? We've talked about apostles. We've talked about those in ministry. But what about you? Well, I believe you too can view yourself as a servant of Christ and a steward of God. Now, it hasn't been given to any of us to steward the revelation of the mysteries of God as it was with Paul and the apostles, but you have plenty of things in your life that God has given you, and you are to steward those things, aren't you? Your own life. There's a stewardship ministry that you have over your own life, your finances, all your possessions, that you would serve God with them, your family, your spiritual gifts, your role in the local church. So even though particularly church leaders are in mind here in this passage, all believers can apply this. You've been entrusted with so many things, and not the least of which is the gospel message itself. You are a steward of that message as an ambassador of Christ, and you are a servant of Christ. And what we're about to see in this passage is that because we all share in this role as servants of Christ and stewards of God, We are actually free from the judgment of man. If we find our identity in these roles as servants and stewards, we are free from the judgments others might render with imperfect judgment. Because you only have one master, and His name is Christ. He's the only Lord over your life, and His opinion truly is the only one at the end of the day that matters. And so whether you're receiving a rebuke, or whether you've heard that someone has thought a certain thing about you, your ministry, your life, if it is not based on what has been revealed to us from the Lord Himself, then that judgment truly, absolutely, 
doesn't quite matter (laughs) because you only have one master to whom you are accountable as a servant and as a steward. And this should affect how we view each other. It informs how we render judgments. It informs how we interpret judgments. And that's a big part of your life. It's a major part of your life. So again, verses 3 through 5, how we should view judgment. Let's read this again. Verse 3, but to me, Paul says, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. So let's talk about how we view judgments and Here in this text, verses 3 through 5, there are judgments from three different people or three different groups of people that we are to examine. The first is judgment from others. How are you to view the judgment from others, namely even other Christians? Notice the context here. Paul is talking to the Corinthians whom he has said are saints, saints in Christ who have been sanctified by their holy faith. How are you to view the judgment of others, even judgments from Christians? Well, Paul says in verse 3, it is a very small thing. It could be translated, it is significant, or insignificant rather. It is an insignificant thing that I am judged by you. Now, that's a statement, right? That's That's a pretty amazing statement that he would say to his brothers and sisters in the faith, it's a small thing that you have criticisms about my ministry. Tiny, insignificant. Wow. Wow. Well, that's the first thing we need to know about others' criticism of our ministry or even of our lives as Christians. It is a very small thing. Again, outside of the context of rebuke from the Word of God, any criticism that people might have as they judge us or compare us to others, insignificant, small. Robert Gromacki says, Paul knew that the approval or disapproval of his stewardship did not rest upon their acceptance or rejection of his ministry. They hadn't commissioned him. Therefore, he was not accountable to them. He was not bothered by the fact that they attempted to evaluate his ministry and that they compared him to others. They hadn't commissioned him. Therefore, he wasn't accountable to them. Important to note that. The Corinthians, what were they doing? They were judging the effectiveness of the apostles' ministry. They were judging how fruitful a certain teacher's ministry was based on their own standards. This is called pragmatism. And it can seep into every area of our lives where the ends justify the means, where faithfulness is set aside for what we perceive as fruitfulness. Perhaps God has has put us in a ministry, has called us to a specific ministry, and we don't see a lot of fruit from that ministry from our perspective. But what's our calling? Our calling is to do that ministry. Our calling is to be faithful. Our calling is to serve in humble love. 
If we start looking at what we perceive as fruit from our ministry, then all of a sudden we can totally rewrite the book and say, actually, I'm going to do something that I perceive as more effective. And the means to get there, I will pick on my own. I don't, you know, I, I know that the Word says this, I know that I'm called to do this, but I just wasn't seeing any results. So we're going to start doing this. We're going to start doing that. We're going to add more lights and make it boom, bang. We're going to do all these things that I think we should be doing because I think I can get results that way. Pragmatism. To be rejected in order to be faithful. And if God brings about great fruit, and we recognize it as fruit, and we see it, and He's blessing. That doesn't mean that, that, that we've slipped into pragmatism. Sometimes God will just like pour down blessings on a ministry, and that person is faithful, and God gives them all these blessings, and that's amazing. And sometimes people are faithful, perhaps just as faithful or even more faithful than at first example, and they don't see any of those. <laughs> They're not detecting any of those. And certainly the people around them don't see those or feel those, but they're faithful. And that's what matters, isn't it? Our faithfulness. As stewards, we're to be found trustworthy. And so the judgment from others, especially if it's a pragmatic judgment, it's a very small thing. Human judgments are so insignificant in this way, so insignificant especially in Corinth, where they were ranking and comparing their leaders. Can I give you an immediate application from this? Don't rank or compare leaders. Don't do it. You're tempted to do it. I'm not saying don't have a favorite or throw away any kind of preferences you might have. It's fine. We all have those. But don't let it seep out in judgments where you're rendering judgments on faithful believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who are serving the Lord with all their heart and their ministries, who seek to serve you in humble love. Don't rank them. Don't compare them. Don't do that. And leaders shouldn't buy into it when others do that. Our consciences should be steered by our motives, and no man can judge our motives. Man can only look on the outside, and only on the heart can God look and see our motives. So it's, this is a reminder to those of you who are prone to being sent on a guilt trip when others want to put judgments on your life and on your ministry. If that's where you are, if you're prone to start feeling guilty because of the human judgments of others, this is a reminder to you that our consciences are to be steered by our motives, and no human judge can see your motives. Only God can see that. Furthermore, our identity as servants and stewards should be guiding those motives. Again, in the book of Colossians, turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. Colossians 2, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. Again, in plain language for us, here it is, Paul writes to this church, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which were 
or which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God." Paul is writing to them saying, you are free from all of those earthly judgments where people say you should do this, you should do that in your ministry or in your life. You you observe this day and celebrate this day on the calendar? What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with you. They're not your judge. God looks at your motives, and God knows your heart. You eat this? You drink that? How could you? You're a Christian. That person is not your judge. No one is to act as your judge in regard to these things. In verse 18, again, look at this, Colossians 2, 18. What happens when you let that person become your judge? Well, that person defrauds you of your prize. That person takes away your joy. That person takes away your freedom. That person takes away the grace that you have in Christ. When you let that person become your judge, you become a slave, and that person becomes your master. And you only have one relationship like that in your life. It's with you and your Savior. You are to be free from the judgments of others in that way. Our grip on the gospel frees us from these earthly judges, and that then guides our motives. This is why it's important for you to know the Bible. One of the many, many reasons it's important for you to know your Bible. That's how you know when to say, so what, to someone who seeks to judge you. There are plenty of times to say, so what. But if that person comes to you from the Scriptures and reasons with you from the Scriptures and teaches you something from the Scriptures, then you submit to the Scriptures. But outside of that, let no one act as your judge. You are free. You are free to serve your one master, Jesus Christ. In Romans 14, this gets explained even further, talking about food and talking about the celebration of certain days. And Paul says, who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are you to do that? It is before our master, Jesus, that we all stand or fall. And we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account But here in this life, we can't see each other's motives. Therefore, you need to guard yourself against making those calls, making those judgments on other people's motives. And as people judge you, you need to guard against going for the guilt trip and becoming a slave to that person because that person is not your master. Only Jesus is your master. The Bible gives us our identity as servants and stewards, and that identity guides our motive, and that motive informs our conscience. Our identity guides our motives, and our motives inform our conscience because of what Jesus has said, that we are servants and stewards. And that's how we are to consider judgments from others, and we're also to consider in this way judgments from ourselves. Look uh, again in 1 Corinthians 4, the end of verse 3, 
Another startling statement, after Paul says, it's insignificant that I'm examined by you, he goes on to say something just as wild, I don't even examine myself. Wow! He doesn't get so introspective that he could be called one who examines himself. What a statement. Paul didn't deal with that thing that many of us deal with, paralysis by analysis. Have you heard of that? You just get so caught up in examining every little thing, looking through all the numbers over and over again. You can't move. Paralysis by analysis. That wasn't Paul. Paul did not dwell on himself. And did you know, if you didn't, let me tell you, there's great danger in dwelling on yourself. There is great danger in being so introspective and examining every part of your life because you can't do it perfectly, and you're going to be left at the end of that process with more questions than answers because you can't figure it all out. You can't sort out the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. You know what can? Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it sorts all of that out in us. So instead of questioning yourself, go to Scripture and let Scripture question you. Go to prayer and ask the Lord to reveal things to you. If you become your own judge, you will be left with more questions than answers. And we know that Paul was focused supremely on pleasing the Lord. And he was focused on pleasing the Lord without analyzing everything, without digging into every detail of his ministry. Think of all the things that Paul did. If you were to right now, without looking at your Bible, make a list of all the cities that Paul visited, you would list a lot, and you probably wouldn't even get half of them. You start thinking through all the things Paul did in his ministry, traveling around, and then all the people he met in every city. That all adds up. Don't you think he had ample opportunity to sit there with, by candlelight and think, man, should I have had one more conversation with that guy in that city? Should, should I go back? Should I, should I get on a ship and go reverse course? Because, you know, I, I think I just need more time with these people or those people. It's just countless. Countless in his ministry. But you know what Paul says? I don't even examine myself. <laughs> he doesn't go into that. He doesn't get into all those details because he would be left more confused than when he began. He knew that the Lord was the one who examined his heart. Look at verse 4. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. He trusted the Lord to reveal his heart, and because he hadn't had anything revealed in his life, he could say with a clear conscience, verse 4, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. The Lord hadn't brought it about. The Lord hadn't used his people to reveal that sin. The Lord hadn't used that, his word to reveal any of that sin. He had no known sin that needed to be addressed, as he wrote to the Corinthians, regarding his relationship with them. He's conscious of nothing against himself. Yet, he follows it right up by saying, I am not by that acquitted, because he knew he wasn't a perfect judge. Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21, 2, you can write down this reference. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord weighs the hearts. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Same idea. It's vain and futile to be so introspective in examining yourself. 
because you will be left more confused than you were at the start. We can't fully understand even our own hearts. Thomas Schreiner writes, Human beings cannot make a judgment on the motives of the heart since we cannot unfailingly discern the motives of others, nor are we able to plumb the depths of our own hearts. Thus, the Lord will reveal on the last day the motives of each one. We can't fully understand our own hearts. So what do we do? We read the Word of God, let it shape us, and we ask the Lord by whatever means He wants to use it to reveal to us our hearts. David did that. Lord, search my heart. Paul did that, and you should do that. You should, because only God can judge And we've arrived at the only opinion that matters. It's not the opinion of others. It's not the opinion of self. It's the opinion of King Jesus. Verse 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. That's a commandment for you today. But instead, wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. There is coming a time of judgment for all people, every single human being. There will be the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is based on the gospel. What have you done with the gospel? If you have refused to repent, if you have refused to submit to Jesus Christ as Savior, you will find yourself at that judgment, and the only result of that judgment is the wrath of God. Those whose names were not found in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire, Scripture says. However, if you are a believer, your judgment is the Bema Seat, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. The Bema Seat judgment where Christ holds this tribunal and there are rewards given to Christians. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. You look at the end of verse 5. He says at the end of the judgment, his praise comes from God. There is no praise that comes from God at the end of the great white throne judgment. But there is a praise from God at the end of the Bema Seat judgment. A judgment based on your stewardship. The stewardship of the things God has given you, as you are a servant of Christ, stewarding your life, your family, your possessions, the gospel message itself. The Bema Seat results in the burning up of the works not done for Christ and the remaining of the works that were done for Christ. And God gives man a praise at the end of that judgment. What a statement. Each man's praise comes from God. Perhaps a crown, some type of reward, but it's rewards for faithful believers, faithful stewards. So how do you know which judgment you'll attend? How do you know? Well, in light of what I just preached, the answer might surprise you. In Paul's Uh, next letter that we have in Scripture to the Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians this, examine yourselves. Because what you do with the gospel, that you can judge. 
You are able to understand where you are in relationship to the cross. God has given you the faculties to understand whether you're an enemy of Christ or a follower of Christ. Examine yourself. You can judge yourself in this way. Do you believe the gospel? Have you submitted to what the Word of God says about your nature, that you are a sinner, that you have fallen in Adam, that you have offended a holy God willfully as you have rebelled against Him, your Creator? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, He came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, found in likeness as a fellow servant. Amazing thought. And He lived a perfect life on this earth, fulfilling the law of God. And He died a death that we deserved. Though He was completely innocent, though He was absolutely guilt-free, sin hadn't touched Him in any way, He died as a substitution for you and for me. The penalty we were supposed to pay, death, Jesus paid for us as He hanged there in our stead. And then He rose again. He walked out of the grave. He proved that He is who He said He was, that He is the Lord of the universe, that death couldn't hold Him, that He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and in Him all things hold together. He couldn't have been eliminated. This whole universe would have fallen apart. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly God, He came and did what we couldn't do in our place in every way. And it is by faith alone that a great exchange happens, that we see all of our sin put on to Christ. And He takes all of His righteousness and puts it on us. That's why you're not going to be at that great white throne judgment if you're a Christian. Because your sins have already been judged. The punishment's already been doled out. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're free from the judgment of others. You're free from the judgment of self. And you are free from any punishment from God that you would have received otherwise. And you stand free before the Lord, totally forgiven, completely, thoroughly, utterly forgiven, to the fullest extent, not one thing left. And only God can judge you. (laughs) Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? Lord, thank You so much that You've cleansed us. You've given us new hearts, and You've made us one with You through faith in Christ. Allow us to view judgment rightly, that we wouldn't issue any judgments that are inappropriate, and that we wouldn't fall for any judgments that are inappropriate. But allow us to hold these things in balance from what the Word of God says, that we would recognize that You are the only one ultimately whose opinion matters. You've given us instruction in Your Word. Cause us to look at that knowing that You're the only opinion that matters. And give us love for one another. Give us grace for one another and mercy and space to breathe that we would be free in Christ as we serve You and serve each other. We are truly Your servants and we truly are stewards of Your good gifts. 
Make us like Christ in the way that we handle these things. In Jesus' name, amen.